Good afternoon. Uh, here we are at the Moore Galleries. Um, my name is Flora Ward. I'm one of the editors and contributing writers to Artblog, and I'm here together with Roberta Fallon, our, our fearless leader. Um, and we are here to have a conversation about Africa and African art in Philadelphia this summer. There are two huge uh, shows going on right now <clears throat> in Philadelphia, one at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in the Perelman Building, which is the one that's right next to the big temple. Um, that building has been taken over by Creative Africa, which is a group of four different shows um, that explore different media. Oh, five shows, excuse me, five shows, because there's one on the second floor that you can overlook if you're not careful, like I just did. So five different shows that explore different media um, and different historical periods. Uh, so we have at Creative Africa, the first show that you see when you come in the door is called Look Again. It's contemporary perspectives on African art. And this is a really big and important show because it brings together material from the Penn Archaeology Museum's collection of African art, um, together with some work that the PMA itself also has. And it was curated by a guest curator uh, named Christina Van Dyke who has done a lot of different exhibitions of African art across the country. Um, she's sort of a curator at large. Uh, and then, uh, so the UPenn Museum uh, contribution here is really important. The other show, uh, moving up in time a bit, is Three Photographers, Six Cities, um, which is on through September 26th, and explores the work of three different African photographers, contemporary photographers. Uh, there's also a couple of textile shows. Uh, one is called Vlisco, African Fashion uh, on a Global Stage. And the other one upstairs explores traditional uh, African textile manufacturing techniques and how they've survived to the present day. And then the fifth and final show is Architecture. So it's the Architecture of Francis Kere, Building for Community. So a really broad range of um, materials that are put in those shows, broad range of themes to explore, all under the rubric of Creative Africa. Um, meanwhile, over at the Barnes Foundation, we have Neri Ward, a Jamaican-American artist based in New York, uh, who has his show Sunsplashed. Um, and that is work that uh, is coming to us from the Miami um, Perez Museum of Art. So it's, it's uh, part of what was on view in Miami has been brought here to the barns. Um, and it's a range of objects that date from the 1990s all the way through, you know, last year. So it's really an interesting kind of mid-career survey of what this prominent um, artist, Neri Ward, has been up to. So Roberta and I wanted to discuss these two big shows and see uh, what connections they may have and, um, you know, interesting and exciting ways to engage with them as members of the audience and general enthusiasts. So, Roberta, if I could ask, um, you've done a few press events at the Creative Africa show um, that I haven't been to, so I would love to hear about your experience in that context, because that's really different than what, you know, the average visitor gets to see when they go in. It is, and I'm very happy every time I get invited to a press preview, because you get to see the art without a crowd of people. Generally, if you visit a museum and there's some sort of blockbuster show, and I think we can 
qualify the Creative Africa at the Art Museum as a blockbuster show. I've been there twice now, and both days it was filled with visitors uh, who were eagerly looking at the art and participating in the, the projects, the art projects you can do. Uh, when you go on the press preview, the artists are frequently there, and this press preview had all three of the African photographers on site, as well as Mr. Carré, the architect, he was there. Um, Christina Dyke was also there to speak about the antiquities from the Penn Museum. And of course you had the head of the museum was there and the curator of photography, the curator of textiles and costumes. So you get a lot of people talking about the exhibits. And it's always wonderful to hear what they have to say about why they put this show together. Um, it seems that it's, it came together through personal passion of the curators and uh, the art museum director, of course. And I think out of a passion to um, deinstitutionalize the art museum, if I can use that word, and make it more accessible to a population that might not come to the art museum. You know, it's, it's in the Perlman building, which is a very nice building if you haven't been there before. It's not as overwhelming as going to the big museum, which can be overwhelming if you haven't been there before. It sprawls on and on and up and down, and you can get kind of exhausted. But the Perlman has these five shows, and it's over, um, I don't want to minimize it, but the floor space that you have to walk is smaller than what you would traverse if you were in the big museum looking at five different exhibits. Um, one of the things I enjoyed was the opportunity to listen to the artists themselves speak. And I got to have a little interview with Mr. Akinbode, who is one of the photographers. Um, he's Nigerian, of Nigerian parentage, born in England, and right now he is based out of Berlin, as is the architect, Mr. Carey, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Akinbode told me, I asked him had he been to Philadelphia before, expecting no, never, and that was indeed the answer, no, never. But he hit the ground and he actually went out with his camera for six hours, he told me, and took photos of Philadelphia and found it very interesting. Now he's a street photographer, so the work that he does uh, covers cities in Africa, at least what's on view in the show, um, Cairo and other, Johannesburg, other major cities. And so I thought it was very interesting that he found concordance with the Philadelphia street scene here because his, his photographs, which are black and white, he shoots, he's a self-taught photographer, um, shoots in black and white, so some digital and some gelatin prints. Excuse the background noise. And um, I don't know what he took pictures of exactly, but he found Philadelphia fascinating and welcoming with his camera. Um, we also spoke with the architect, Mr. Carre, and his joy in presenting what he 
sees as his work was absolutely captivating. He was so connected to community. He, he makes architecture for people and for people who don't have a lot of materials. He works a lot in his home country of um, Burkina Faso, I believe it is, uh, where he has built schools and it's a lot of indoor-outdoor architecture where you know there may be a roof to protect you but there's no walls per se. Uh, and it just he he was completely absorbed in what he was uh, producing for the people of his country, and he's now started making things for other communities in Europe as well. But rooted in his own growing up in this country and understanding at a really basic level what some of the needs are. Right, and as a visitor to the shows. Um, I personally absolutely loved the um, architectural installation that's sort of in the hallway as you approach uh, the show about Carré's work. Um, it's a series of multicolored strings that hang at different um, lengths. And you sort of walk in it. Imagine like those 1970s beaded curtains only like turned up to 11. They're just, it's really a fantastically fun immersive experience and it's so playful and like quite joyous so um, I know I took a lot of uh, pictures while I was there I saw other visitors interacting with it in the same really playful way and um, I think that relates to what you were saying about the architect's palpable joy at his work and presenting it here in Philadelphia as well as this desire on the part of the PMA itself to deinstitute institutionalize the museum and make these much more um, accessible, community-oriented experiences. Um, so I thought that with that sort of the string installation, I, I'm sure there's a more technical way to describe that. Cord. Ah, cord. Colored cord. Colored cords. Well, um, that cord, colored cord installation was, to my mind, very successful uh, at accomplishing a sort of real viewer, um, visitor engagement, fun, um, thought-provoking, uh, really asks you to uh, sort of think about your perspective, quite literally, as the colors change and the textures around you change. Um, but I was also interested in how else um, both of us have seen visitors interact with the works on view in these shows in the context of like making it more approachable, the whole sort of museum going experience. One of the things for me, for example, that struck me about the Look Again show, the, the sort of uh, more traditional uh, familiar picture of African art consisting of um, sort of ritual and functional objects from across the continent all thrown together in one show. Um, that is a very, to my mind, deliberately educational, um, you know, or one you might even say like pedagogical show. It felt like it was oriented to um, like school groups and teaching particularly young or uninitiated viewers what they're looking at in a very matter-of-fact way that emphasized the sort of the who and the what and the where and the when. Um, and there's a lot of virtue to that approach because, you know, it's a way of teaching people about this material. Um, but it's also not the only approach that you can take to contextualize some of this material. 
And I was wondering um, how your experience of the Look Again show was. You mentioned that the curator, Christina Van Dyke, was present at the press preview. And I was wondering about your, um, your perception of that particular show and what she may have had to say about her, her goals in it. Um, I'm sure she was very eloquent. I can't call it to mind right now, um, but I do believe that to be the case. Uh, I want to say the show is really beautiful to look at. It's very, um, it's totemic objects that are placed gorgeously in vitrines or masks on walls. They're very um, stark with white walls, you know, oftentimes nowadays the museum colors the walls. A lot of museums like bright colored walls, but this toned down the walls. They were completely invisible and the spotlights are on the objects. So it, it has a kind of sacred feel to it almost. And it felt less like an art museum and more like an archeology span museum. So I thought it served the Penn Museum very well in its layout. And the one innovation that they did have, and I'm not sure if it was there when you were there, but they have a computer table in the back of the, the room for Look Again, and I saw a bunch of kids playing wildly with it, you know, touching the screen and moving things around. I don't know, they were treating it like a game, and you know, kids are very fearless when it comes to computers, and I think that this was an element that was meant to be educational and to expand upon what you were seeing. I'm not sure whether the kids actually understood what they were playing with, but they played with it. They were <laughs> delighted to get their hands all over this uh, computer table that was interactive for them and made music and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was a great addition. So it, it is pedagogical. I totally agree with you. Um, um, I want to say that the family program that the art museum has this summer that's called Art Splash is using that part of the five exhibitions to kind of rope the families in to make masks and they've got tables set up in the atrium with scissors and glue and colored paper and they talk, the, there's greeters that greet you as you, they kind, kind of, you know, corral you as you come in the door. Would you like to make a mask? Have you seen that? Almost before the kids have had a chance to see the masks, they're having them make masks. So I think they're using it pedagogically, but also in a friendly kind of way. Right. Um, I was also struck by that um, sort of gigantic iPad almost uh, is what it felt like at the very back of the, the Look Again show. Um, and what that brought up a lot of different um, sort of reactions or responses for me. On the one hand, um, I totally take your point that I can see kids interacting with this like a game because that's what it feels like. You know, you're dealing with what feels like a giant iPad and you can sort of move shapes around and everything. Um, but to what extent do they actually grasp any or are they is any information transmitted through that format is a big question. And so that is relating to a series of reliquary figures that are on the wall there at the very back of the gallery um, and they are from the Kota culture group 
And these are among the more like visually um, sort of iconic, like these are the kinds of things you think about when you think of African art, basically. And they are fascinating um, objects. They're all kind of variations on some geometrical themes. And this really stimulated a um, computer, sort of like an IT guy. I think he's like Belgian, I can't remember what. And he devised this very formalist that is based on like the visual geometric compositional principles of each of these masks, developed the system to classify them and determine their gender. So which mask is male and which mask is female, right? I find that entire project interesting, but definitely doesn't tell the whole story of what's going on with these masks. And it also speaks to a bigger issue in the display and interpretation of African art that I think is still with us and connects to the show at the Barnes, the Nary Ward show. And that is displaying African art according to Western European visual and formal principles. So the history of art has, in the sort of European and American history of art, has a very complicated and dark history when it comes to engaging with African art. And that's not just because of, oh, uh, colonialism. It's also because of the way African art was collected and acquired and displayed throughout the 20th century. And one of the collectors who helped shape that um, sort of early culture of African art collection and display was, of course, Dr. Barnes, our very own um, Dr. Barnes of the Barnes Foundation, a great Philadelphia institution. And he collected African art at the same time as, um, for example, the Penn Museum acquired a lot of its objects um, in the first part of the 20th century. And um, he was mostly interested in the visual, formal properties of African art. Just like artists like Picasso famously uh, also collected African art, he collected um, masks and used those um, used them as inspiration, visual inspiration for many of his most famous paintings, like um, the Demoiselle d'Avignon, that famous um, sort of scene of these Cubist women in a brothel who have these sort of African masks on. So Picasso himself was a collector of African art and an observer of it, but only from the perspective of visuals. This was without any knowledge or insight into the cultures that produced them, any knowledge or insight into the functionality of these objects within those cultures, and also, to add insult to injury, they were often collected and bought in really dubious ways. So that's the legacy of African art in Western museums. And I think we have to see that as the sort of background to any show that has to do with African art today that's trying to react against that and say we don't want to be like we were in the past. We want to do something different. We want to be more accessible. We want to be more transparent and open and more engaging. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of the elephant in the room. And it's the elephant in the room at the PMA and at the Barnes, where the show by Neri Ward, um, while on the surface, may seem really different from what we expect of the Barnes. The 
permanent collection of the Barnes is this amazing group of post-impressionist, like early 20th century paintings, Van Gogh, Matisse, Cezanne, Picasso, all those great painters, right? And here we have a temporary installation, a temporary exhibition by Neri Ward, a contemporary, still very much alive, um, Jamaican-American artist who does sculpture uh, with found objects. Now that at first seems so different from what is in the Barnes's like regular wheelhouse. And yet there are all these important connections when you think about the Barnes and Dr. Barnes's collection of African art. So I wanted to turn and think about what's going on in the Nary Ward show. Um, both of us went to see the press preview and have had a bit of time to reflect on this as a show and how it you know, fits in to the barns where it has been displayed. So I wanted to ask you, what were some of the standouts for you in the Nary Ward show? What pieces really excited you and um, kind of provoked thought? Yeah. Um... First of all, thank you. That was really well done about the <laughs> the rape of Africa by the Westerners. Um, that's put too strongly, but you know what I mean. Um, the antiquities that are that don't belong to us but are in our museums. It, it, there is a legacy there, and it was good that you mentioned all of that. Um, and I think they're dealing with that. I think the museums are now coming to grips with. I know some museums are giving things back to the original countries and some are not, but they're at least acknowledging the, the route that they uh, got them. Um, for me, found object sculpture is a particular type of sculpture and I think it comes with built-in problems that uh, arise from using a found object. A found object is not, it's a loaded material, it doesn't come like a tabula rasa. It has something that was a history. It has a connotation that the viewer will bring to it based on their experience with that found object in their lives. Um, and so not all found object sculpture can be as successful as some found object sculpture. And I think Neri Ward is a particularly excellent found object sculptor. I found some high points and some points that I didn't care so much about. Um, a piece of his that I really adored was the uh, liquor store, vertical liquor store neon sign that was in his neighborhood. And he collects um, these objects from like walking around his neighborhood. So it was a liquor store sign and he turned it upside down and he took some of the letters out to make it say soul. Um, and I thought that was just marvelous. And he, of course, stuffed it with shoelaces and other things that are kind of signature materials of his to make it his. And it was totemic. And it was kind of run down. But it was beautiful because it was light. So it had this kind of sacred, you know, churches have neon signs, some of them. And so this was the Church of Lickert turned around and upside down, and it was now soulful. So I thought that was a very, a particularly um, well done found object sculpture. And I hadn't seen it before, I did not. I know some of his work rather well because he has um, had residence, a residency with the Fabric Workshop and Museum where he made two wonderful pieces several years ago. Um, I'd seen him in the one of the Whitney Biennials 
way back when, I mean, he came on the scene in the 90s when he was star he started to make uh, a mark on the New York art scene. And he had a very memorable piece where he sliced open some oil barrels and turned them into a tanning bed. And it was not only anti-oil, uh, but it had racial overtones. And he called it glory, which of course has, you know, we all know the movie Glory, which was about the African-American soldiers fighting during the Civil War. Um, so a very loaded piece made with very smart found objects, I thought. So that was another high point. Um, I think he, some of the things felt a little less successful. Um, there was a piece that had a book that was stabbed and had a rock on it, and it had some play with rock, paper, scissors, and it was also a law book. So um, I didn't, I thought that was a little too one note to be as successful as some of the others, but still, way to go. That was really, you know, a good use of smaller materials for a tabletop kind yes. of sculpture. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about one of the, sh the pieces in that show that stood out to me because, like we said, he's been working since the 90s. And so there were pieces in that show that dated all the way back to the 90s and up to last year, 2015. And in fact, the most recent object in that show was a huge piece um, called Oriented Right. And it is it really impressed me visually because it stood out from his other um, the other pieces in terms of the materiality of it. So as you said, he is a found object sculptor and he is very good at adapting um, kind of everyday objects uh, in new contexts for new meanings. This piece was a large uh, sort of wooden frame with a copper sheet laid over it. And on that copper sheet, he had perforated in a series of holes a diamond pattern and then stuck copper nails into the wood at differing depths, right? And then he walked on top of that copper with his, like, with his feet, <laughs> how else are you gonna walk, um, with um, an oxidizing agent. So it creates this patina, this, it makes it look old, right? Here's an object that was created last year, but he's deliberately giving it this kind of historic patina with, his, um, with that oxidizing material. And there were several things going on in that piece that really struck me. Um, one was the story that came with it. When we were at the, the press preview, we heard a little bit from the curator from the Perez Museum. She told us a little bit about the genesis of this piece. And it's based on um, a church in Savannah, Georgia. Um, it's an African Baptist church, very historic. Um, the community there dates back to the 18th century. And the church itself, the building, was an important stop on the Underground Railroad. So hidden beneath carpeting on this floor are uh, uh, the wooden floor, right? Are these air holes, these circular perforations in the wood, these air holes that they literally functioned as air holes because people would hide under the floor of the church as part of the Underground Railroad. And the, these air holes were in diamond shaped patterns. 
just like the one that Neri Ward has used in this piece. Now, those shapes themselves are significant because they're actually um, sort of charms in like uh, sort of African-American Southern tradition um, that come from West Africa, right? So these are like, um, co you call them cosmograms, basically. They're kind of symbolic um, geometric shapes that speak to the traditions that people, that enslaved people brought with them to the Americas from Africa. So you have all these layers going on here. And then moreover, the nails in it reminded me of Congolese power figures. And there were some on view at the PMA in the, um, in that show, Look Again, about um, traditional sort of contemporary perspectives on traditional African art. So these are really interesting power figures um, that come from the Congo region of Africa, and they are used by communities basically um, to, I mean, you come to them with what you need, and when you um, invoke their power, you put nails in them. And the more nails, are in one of these giant wooden statues, the more powerful they are, the more um, things that they can do for you, right? Just like medieval Christians prayed to um, statues at relics, and the more adornments those statues had, the more powerful they were, the more miracles they could perform. It's a similar thing. And so Neri Ward, in, in that piece, he seems to be layering all these different references. And I found it quite beautiful. Um, and very different from the other found object stuff that was on view there. Um, did you, was that a piece that stuck, that sort of stood out to you at all? Or um, were you mostly focused on some of the found object material? To me, this was a two-dimensional work. Although it wasn't, it had some three-dimensionality to it. But it was on the wall. It looked like a painting. It looked like an abstract painting. Um, I thought of, you know, Anselm Kiefer, although less material-oriented. Uh, and I think what made the piece for me is the story behind it, not the visual. Mm. I think the visual was, it was interesting, and I would say it was a private performance. He is an artist who does a little bit of performing. There was one piece that was a shopping cart that he had festooned. And pushing Savior, pushing yes. Pushing Savior, and he pushed it in his neighborhood to a church. And, uh, and what you see in the exhibit at the Barnes is the shopping cart itself. And there's a video of the performance that shows him. So he does perform. I want to say that this piece, The Oriented Right, was a private performance by him. He walked on it. He put nails in it. He did, it almost feels like it had spiritual power or um, it was a worshipful piece for him. I think he was evoking the ancestors and the people that passed through this church and that were trapped underneath the floor. Um, so I think visually, without the story, it doesn't have the power. With the story and with the knowledge that he walked on it and he did this private performance, I think it becomes a very powerful kind of different work for him. It, you're absolutely right, it's different. Yeah, it really, it struck me as, as um, standing out amongst <clears throat> the other objects there just because of its two dimensionality. And it kind of harks back to his roots as a painter um, because he was trained first as a painter apparently. 
So we've touched on um, both of the shows, Creative Africa, as well as Neri Ward's Sunsplashed, not to be confused with the Art Splash at the PMA. Lots of splashing going on this summer. Um, so we've discussed uh, these two shows, and I hope that some similarities and connections have come through in that in terms of their focus on materials, like the objects that are used to make, compose these works of art, and just how function um, and functionality plays into them as well. Um, the fine, I guess one thought that I'd like to leave you with is, um, despite all the, the connections that we're drawing amongst these shows that highlight African and African diaspora sort of identities, I think it's important as well to um, definitely not put everything under a single umbrella of Africa or African art because what we see is a diversity, right? We see so many different kinds of materials and cultural kind of origin points and, and context for things. Um, we see a lot of these artists who are still alive, like the photographers that you spoke with, they all, most of them are working in Europe. They're artists of the diaspora. To sort of call them African photographers is really not explaining what they do. And so I think that um, this blockbuster show at the PMA and this, um, this great Nary Ward show at the Barnes are bringing to our attention these artists and these uh, diverse traditions that come out of Africa and the African diaspora, but we really should also start taking these artists on their own terms rather than seeing them as representative of a larger kind of cultural identity being subsumed into this, like, they are African artists, this is African art, when in fact that really almost doesn't mean anything. <laughs> that, that identity kind of dissolves. Yeah, that's a good point. And I want to say that for the photographers in particular, it reminded me that with the internet, these are internet era photographers who have been working for a while. And everybody has that pretty much, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people and probably these photographers have access to the internet. And so they're conversant with the global art conversation that is going on about photography. And so the works in the photo show in particular felt congruent with what's being shown at the Philadelphia Photo Arts Center and um, other places, the ICP in New York. It's street photography and uh, documentary photography of a certain kind, very well done by people that happen to have been born in or have roots in Africa. Exactly. Um, and I think that we will, I think, leave it on that note of Roots in Africa. Um, really encourage everyone to get out and see these shows at the PMA, um, PMA's Perelman Building, Creative Africa, all five shows there. And then at the Barnes, um, the Nary Ward show, uh, Sunsplashed. So thank you all for being with us. Thank and, you. And uh, this is Flora. And this is Roberta. And uh, this is Art Blog Radio over and out.